morning, everybody. Uh, yes. Uh, I'd given up on you and was just going to start talking, but you, you were ready. I've, so I'm, I repent. I'm sorry for not believing in you, um, which is a great segue into today's text. Uh, if you'll turn to Acts 12, please. Uh, Acts chapter 12, we're going to be there. Maybe a few other places. I don't know. I mean, I mostly know, but I don't know. Acts chapter 12. And uh, look at this great text today. Um, so, um, my freshman year of college, I attempted to major in music, which makes me laugh just thinking about it, even yet again. But the reason I, I tried to major in mucus, mucus music <laughs> is because, yes. Funny, never mind, I won't, I won't tell you a funny story about my mucus, but um, the, the reason for that is because God called me to ministry through a combination of youth ministry and, and music ministry and church music. So, you know, small town, uh, rural Mississippi, um, where church was the center of our social life uh, for, you know, 30 or 40 of us in the youth group. And so um, I was there just all the time as a, as a high school student, so, and particularly on Sundays. I was, I was there, so I had church from 9 to, to 12 and go home and eat the pot roast that mom had in the thing, you know. And then from 3.30 until uh, sometimes 9 o'clock on Sundays, I was involved in some sort of church ministry, and most of those in the afternoon were music. So I was just sure that uh, through, because God called me through that, that kind of experience that I was going to be a, a, a worship leader, a musician, or something like that for the Lord. But it didn't take me long to figure out that I really was not cut out for a career in music because um, when, I, when I got to, to college, one of the reasons um, that, that that became very real to me is because I quickly found myself surrounded by actual musicians, um, which weren't really present in the youth group, as it turns out, uh, at First Baptist Church of Cleveland, Mississippi. You know, you people who knew what a circle of fifths was, and they could recite, read pretty well. You know, any melody that you put in front of them, they just go, "Oh, it's this," da 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 da, da. and you just can't. You know, I couldn't couldn't do that. But these people were really nice to me, um, and some of them, you know, took this little guy, you know, and they and they taught me just a few things about music. And one of those guys was Jim. Jim Patillo. Jim was my, uh, he lived two doors down in my freshman hall. We would end up rooming together for three years later um, in our both college and grad school. Um, but Jim had a, a, an acoustic guitar, like very similar to this one. Um, it was a Takamini, if those of you that are into guitars, it was a Japanese guitar. And on the last night of finals, my freshman year, Jim sat me down and taught me two chords on the guitar, a D and a G. And I just walked up and down the hall because it was chaos. You know, it was like, your finals are over. Woohoo! And, you know, because I was a very sheltered child, I just walked around playing D and G up and down the hall over and over again. And I was just completely hooked into playing the guitar. So that summer, I interned at my home church. I bought a $200 Alvarez with my $90 a week that my church was paying me um, to intern in the youth ministry there. And, and my job from uh, three o'clock until five o'clock every day was to sit in the Sunday school director's office where records were kept and practice guitar. That's it. That was my internship. So by the time I got back to college for my sophomore year, you know, I could, I could lead worship and I wanted to kind of take it to the next level. And there was another guy on my hall named Fayette Williams and Fayette Williams could play the guitar in the same way that like Phil Kagey can play the guitar. Like there's, you know what I'm talking about? Like there's the, there's the worship leader and then there's, there's the 
there's the, that's right, there's the Weston and there's the Sam, right? Like there's just, it's that kind of thing, right? There's the Rob and there's the thing. (laughs) (laughs) You were giving me a high five. Like, yes, go for the analogy that everybody could see in the air hanging there. But then when I say it, it's like, I'm leaving. Okay, I get it. That's all right. The stay with Phil Kagey, right. Well, that was the moment that Faye and I were having. I was like, man, I really want to take my guitar to the next level. And so he gave me these CDs. Fayette gave me these CDs of like Phil Kagey and Michael Hedges and Leo Kotke and all these guys that if you're a guitar person, you understand what I'm saying. And he said, Rob, I just want you to know that there are two kinds of guitar players in the world. There are those that make you want to learn how to play guitar. And there are those who make you want to throw your guitar away. And he said, "These are the." He said, "Be careful with these CDs." So one of the things that I have grown to love about the Bible over the years is that it is full of stories of people who, in history, are—they're not examples of us because they are so holy that they—they they make us want to throw our spiritual life away. They're, it's quite the opposite. More often than not, the people in the Bible are portrayed honestly, warts and all. And this is especially true when it comes to their spiritual practices. They inspire us, but at the same time, they're not so, like, I can never pray like, I can never live a spiritual life like David. I can never do this like Ruth, or I can never do this like Esther. That's just not the case in the Bible. It's, they don't inspire us. They inspire us to want to participate, to want to join in, not to where they want to crush us and make us throw our spiritual life away. That is true of Acts 12. That is true of our passage today. It's, and today I want to focus on the aspects of prayer in this passage. Prayer is a thread that runs all through the Gospel of Luke and the, and the story of Acts that Luke also wrote. It's, it's in there a lot. Luke's very interested in us knowing a lot about prayer and practicing prayer. And he does it through the lens often of the practice of it, people doing it, in the context they're doing it. And if you'll read through these narratives and these illustrations again and again and again, you'll see some great examples of things that you should do and ought to do. But you'll also see like, man, there's, these people weren't perfect. They didn't get it always right all the, all the time. In other words, Luke is giving us an honest, real portrayal of, of a prayer life of people. It's not idealism. It's not ivory tower. It's just down to earth salt of the earth. This is what prayer can look like in our lives. So if you stand with me, we're going to read Acts 12, uh, 1 through 16 together. About that time, King Herod violently attacked some of those who belonged to the church, and he executed James, John's brother, with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too during the festival of unleavened bread. And after the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. And when Herod was about to bring him out for trial that very night, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers while the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison. And suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. Striking Peter on the side, he woke him up and said, Quick, get up. And the chains fell off his wrists. Get dressed, the angel told him, and put on your sandals. And he did. Wrap your cloak around you, he told him, and follow me. And so he went out and followed. And he did not know that the, what the angel did was really happening. 
but he thought he was seeing a vision. And after they passed the first and second guards, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them by itself. They went outside and passed one street, and suddenly the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish people expected. And as soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. He knocked at the door of the outer gate, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice, and because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing, out, uh, standing at the outer gate. You're out of your mind, they told her. But she kept insisting that it was true. And they said, it's his angel. Peter, however, kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, you may be seeing him. So, so this morning, I, I want to highlight um, several, just a few wonderful things about prayer. There are several things in the text we could talk about with prayer. We did a lot of that this morning in our Sunday school class in particular. I want to, I want to pull out three, three things for us about prayer um, from, from this text. So if you're a note taker, I think you'll, I think you'll appreciate this, this approach. The first thing I want you to see about prayer coming out of verse 5 and verse 12 is this, that the church was praying together, that this was a communal group gathering experience. So you can see this in verse 5 and you can see this in verse 12. Verse 5 mentions that it was the church, that is, that's the word gathering. They were coming together and they were praying for him. But verse 12, it's very much more clear, right? Verse 12, look at it. As soon as Peter realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled and they were praying. Now, I, this is, if you pause just for a moment and think about the context, this is really fascinating that they were together praying because the context is that you have Herod Agrippa who is finding great joy and great personal political gain by rounding up Christians and their leaders, executing them, imprisoning them. Nothing would make his life easier than to find more Christians in one swoop who have gathered together in a group. But the church is gathering anyway, and they are gathering specifically to pray. Which means the implication is that there's something about being together in prayer. There's something about the church together praying in person that is worth the risk of being persecuted or worse, being killed for doing so. So you see, on the whole, the Bible seems to place a high degree of value on corporate prayer. The vast majority of the Old Testament prayers are corporate prayers. Many of the Psalms were prayed antiphonally. They were prayed congregationally in a group, in a gathering. In his epistles, in his epistles when Paul is giving instruction about prayer, it's almost exclusively related to the gathering of God's people together. So if you put all that together, what you'll see is that for a variety of reasons, the gathered church is to come, it's, it's to pray. When we come in here, we're supposed to pray together. And there's something special, something unique, something wonderful about that process. But the second thing that I want you to see about this is that there is the nature of their prayer, and that is this word um, in verse 5, fervent, that it was earnest, that it was fervent. So you can see this in the, in the narrative, right? It's the middle of the night. 
when Peter is miraculously unshackled and he's led out of the complex by an angel who eventually just left him be. And Peter realizes that what is happening to him is actually real. It's not a, it's not a vision. It's not a, it's not a dream. It's actually taking place. And so in the middle of the night, when it comes to this realization, he goes to John Mark's mother's house, and it's there in the middle of the night that these Christians are up and they are praying. And the implication is that they had started earlier that evening because, um, uh, and then they kept on going because it would have been dangerous for them to leave the house at night and go somewhere else. And the implication also is that they would have kept on praying because the only reason they've stopped is because Rhoda has interrupted them. So fervent, so earnest is their prayer that it surpasses the normal hour and it surpasses normal circumstances. Their prayers were earnest. You know, more often than not, earnestness or fervency in our prayer is directly related to our perceived weakness to do anything about the situation. What What exactly could the church do seeing Herod execute James? What exactly could the church do seeing Herod imprison Peter and put this number of guards into this number of places? It seemed a bit excessive, right, of the security situation. What exactly could the church do to aid Peter in this moment? In, In actuality, in the things of this earth that we have any kind of responsibility or control over, what could they do? Absolutely nothing. But in that desperation, what did they do? Earnestly, fervently gathering together to pray. Why? Not because it's all that they can do, because it is the most powerful thing that they could do. They were driven by a sense of weakness, driven by a sense of desperation. And in that moment, they entered into a power that they could not understand, but that they knew existed. The degree to which we perceive ourselves helpless to do something on our own is when we call to God in prayer to do it on our behalf. Earnest, fervent, unceasing prayer is often related to our perceived inability to do anything in our own power to bring change. So on on Thursday, I finally started reading a book that Holly's been after me to read for a long time, a book by by Paul Miller called A Praying Life. Anybody read this book by show of hands? Okay. So I'm just going to tell you, you're going to get crushed when you read this book. Um, I've I've read three three or four chapters, and then I've used the index to find some things that I needed for this moment that we're having today. But man, this book is crushing, and and it's also edifying as a result. But Paul Miller applies this principle of desperation to parenting. Listen to this paragraph. He says, Many parents, including myself, are initially confident that we can change our child. We don't surrender to our child's will, which is good, but we try to dominate the child with our own, which is bad. And without realizing it, we become demanding and we are driven by the hope of real change, but the change occurs because we make the right moves. And then Miller says this, until we become convinced we can't change our child's heart, we will not take prayer for our child seriously. So this is what happened to the church in Acts 12. By view of their circumstances, they began to they came to this realization they cannot change Peter's circumstances. And so they turned to the one who could. 
or at least could bring them what they needed to understand if their circumstances didn't go their way. The comfort that they needed, the sovereignty that they needed to rest under, the providence that they could trust. You know, folks, we, we need not wait for life circumstances to force us into a position of desperation so that we finally start to pray. This is the crushing truth of this text. We need to recognize that God is the one who is infinitely powerful, that God is capable of anything within His nature, and if that is true, that we should go to Him first, not after we've tried everything else. And if we do first, then we'll do it fervently and earnestly and frequently as well. If God is infinitely powerful and we are not, the fact of the matter is that we are always in a state of desperation, whether we realize it or not. But if we do realize this, prayer becomes our first course of action, not our last. Turn in your Bibles to Acts, to, not Acts, Luke 11. Turn over to Luke 11. I want to, I just, it's so important to understand this, to sit on this for a little bit, because Jesus modeled this and he taught this. He modeled this and he taught this. Look at Luke 11, verse 1. Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. So first of all, see that Jesus is modeling prayer for them. The Lord of the universe, the glorious Christ, the one by whom and through whom and for whom all things were made, lived a human life in a posture of desperation. in a a posture of dependence upon the Father. He modeled it for His people. And this, by the way, is the only place in the Gospel of Luke where you see the disciples ask Jesus to teach them something. And they ask for that. Teach us to be a desperate, needy human being. And so what does He do? He says, well, whenever you pray, do this. Look at verse 2. Father, Your name be honored and holy. Your kingdom come, which is to say what? It's to say something about the nature of God as a father and something to say about him as a sovereign God and as a holy God. Someone who is can and should be approached in the same way that a child approaches his, his, his parents, but in the same way, someone who is infinitely powerful, infinitely holy, and capable of, of ruling and is ruling the universe and capable of anything within his nature. And it immediately puts us into a posture of desperation, into a posture of need. We don't go to Him demanding. We come to Him in humility because He is everything and we are only what He has made us to be. Verse 3, give us our daily bread. Forgive us our sin. Um, so we go to our, to our necessities. Lunch is not really going to be a problem for me when this is over. I, the refrigerator and the freezer are full. And if anything, I might be a little disgruntled that I don't have exactly what it is that I'm craving in that moment. And yet from the very beginning, God is teaching us to have a posture of desperation, to be, have a posture of need in our prayer right down to the basic necessities of our life. In fact, I'm going to start there, he says. Let's just start with the basic necessities. You can't get them unless I provide them for you. And you should ask for them. Living in a constant, steady des- place of desperation of need. Not just with your things, but in your relationships. With me and your relationships with others, you're always going to be in a posture of need. 
And he's, the driver for that is in Luke eleven five. He says, think about the character of God. Suppose one of you has a friend and you go to him, at, it goes to him at midnight and says, friend, give me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine is on a journey. He's come to me and I don't have anything to offer him. Then he will answer from the inside and say, well, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my, my children have gone to bed. I can't get up to give you anything. Verse 8, well, I tell you, Jesus says, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his friend's shameless boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I'm telling you, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. Everyone who asks receives. The one who knocks, uh, the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be open. Why? Verse 11, the character of God. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If he asks for an egg, he'll get a scorpion, which is weird. Don't do that to your kids. But look at the character of God. If you then who are evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the heavenly father give good things in Matthew, Holy Spirit in Luke to those who ask of him? It is the character of God to give to his children who understand that they're in a place of need. To be dependent upon Him over and over and over again. To be constantly living in that that state of mind and that state of our heart. To be in a place of dependence. That's where the people are in Acts, going back to Acts 12. They're in a place of dependence. They're in a place of desperation. They're in a place of need. And when you are there, you are earnestly, fervently, frequently praying to God. So the people in this narrative were living this way. And so they prayed very earnestly, going back to our narrative in Acts 12. And you can see this in verse 5, like the literary structure, look at it. It says, about that time in verse 1, King Herod violently attacked. He's got James, he's, got, he's gotten Peter, he's, he's on the, I mean, he is on the tear. And then there is the verse 5, but the church was praying frequently for, excuse me, fervently to God for him. So the, the, the way that that is structured suggests, so we we're talking about this in Sunday school, like it doesn't explicitly state like, whoop, that means I've hit my time. Um, it doesn't explicitly state, right, what it is that they're praying for him. But the implication is that because Herod is about to do this to Peter in the same way that he did it to James, what we are praying for is that that won't happen. It looks like Herod has all the power. It looks like he has all the momentum. He was able, that God allowed this, God allowed this for James, but they are praying that that will not be the case for Peter. That's the implication. So that's, let's just assume for the sake of argument, I think it's a safe hermeneutical assumption that they are praying for Peter's release, which is what makes the rest of this story so unbelievable. Because they're praying together, They are praying earnestly, and it's a great example of prayer for us. And so you might be thinking, like, I'm never just, I'm never going to pray like that. Like, this is, I'm not even going to bother. But if you keep reading the story, the thing that I want you to see about this group of people praying is that their prayer is somewhat unbelieving. It's somewhat unbelieving. They are praying, presumably, for Peter's release. And when it happens, they don't believe it, right? Look at verses 15 and 16. The people are in prayer and they're told that Peter, the answer to their prayer, is standing outside. Verse 15, you're out of your mind, they told Rhoda. But she kept insisting it was true. And then they said, well then, it's his angel. And Peter, however, kept on knocking. Now that's remarkable. 
Here are a group of people behind locked doors, risking their lives, praying earnestly into the night for Peter to be freed. And when the answer to their prayer falls in their laps, they are more likely to believe that Rhoda has lost her mind. They are more likely to believe that the execution has happened and that Peter's angel is outside because that's biblical. Then they are. Then what is biblical and true that God could answer their prayer? Whew! Fervent, frequent, awesome prayer people sometimes pray and don't believe what it is that's coming out of their mouth. That sounds a lot like me. That sounds a lot like me. I don't want it to be me. I don't want it to be me. I want Luke 11 to be me. I want the other part of Luke 12, or Acts 12 to be me. But you know, in spite of their unbelief, God did answer them. And if their prayer was effective, even though it was unbelieving, why should our prayers not also be effective? These are the same kind of people that we are. You know, the Bible says of Elijah that Elijah was a man just like us, but he prayed that it would not rain, and it did not rain for three and a half years. That's James 5. So the questions that I'm walking away with today are this. Do I really pray? Which is to say, am I at a posture where I, I'm... Is, is the posture of my heart one of need, one of dependence, one of desperation, one of... One, one in which that um, I just had this humility about me that knows I have nothing in this life that God just doesn't give me. Do, am I praying to God? Right? Am, I, am I just working through the, 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 the rote things that I'm just supposed to pray when I bless the meal or when I do this other? And, or am I addressing a father who is holy, like Luke 11 says. Am I praying with other believers? Am I praying fervently? Am I praying believingly? Lord, Lord, may it be so. Let's pray together. I'm going to give you a moment to do that. And then we'll pray together. Pray. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Don't bring us into temptation and deliver us from evil. Help us to be askers, seekers, knockers, receiving the good gifts that you have for us now and for eternity to come. 